What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Kyle Guerra. Will, are you a big, this is the best time of year guy right now? Because I feel like everywhere you go on social media, that's all I see at this point. Just like weather-wise? Well, everything. I think this time of year, sports-wise, I was always that guy growing up mm-hmm. because I love March Madness. Like I went to a basketball-crazy college. I loved it when I was in high school. It was something that me and my buddies, we would sneak off in the middle of lunch and we'd go watch the NCAA tournament. And I'm not saying that I'm like down on any of that. And I still love spring training. And, and this time of year, you know, when you live in the Midwest and it starts to get a little bit warm and you get that occasional day where it's 60 and everybody wears shorts and you're looking around like, oh man, it can still probably snow tomorrow. There are a lot of very good vibes this time of year. You've also got spring break, but I have shifted as someone who does this job for a living and I am no longer this is the best time of year guy because I'm like, wait a minute, best time of year should include college football. And it's not that I don't like spring football, but the best time of year should include college football. So I'm not gonna poo-poo anybody that says that this is the best time of year right now. I just think that maybe it should be best time of year 1A. I love March Madness, don't, don't get it twisted. I love March Madness, but like, Come on, we can't leave college football out of this thing, right? Look at this, we're converting you, man. And like, no, I totally agree. Like, I'm a September birthday. I love that time of the year with like the, the leaves start changing. Get fire pit season, bro. That's all you gotta say. Mm, fire pit season, that's good. I like that. That's big in the Midwest too, as well. Fire pit season. Uh, plan for today is we've got Reese Davis. We got to talk about his new deal with ESPN. Uh, talked about future of college game day, immediate and some somewhat distance. And we, we got into a bunch of other stuff. It was so fun. Stay until the end where I pretty much outed my wife for having a crush on him too. Um, but yeah, I was able to get like a solid 40, 45 minutes with Reese. So I think you'll really enjoy that. I've also got a lot that I wanna get to with the Les Miles mess, what it says about LSU, big time college football. Plus I lighten things up a bit. I've got my all bang the drum team in the SEC. And then we're gonna close with some SEC tournament talk with our hoops guy, Adam Spencer. But before we get to all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you're obsessed with college football, you're going to want to get this newsletter. It is free and it comes straight to your inbox, keeping you up to date on major news in college football in just a few minutes. To sign up, go to saturday.football, yep. That's the website address. I say it each and every week. Go to your internet browser and punch it in, saturday.football. It's that easy. It's free. You can unsubscribe at any time if you don't like it. But if you're like me and you love college football, I know that you're going to love this. So go to saturday.football. Add your email address today. Will, I am old enough to remember, and I know you are. I'm old enough to remember when the most outdated thing about Les Miles was his offense. Little did we know that this guy thought he was the manager at Hooters. What we've learned about Les Miles in the past week, it has to change your impressions of him as a coach and as a human being. And if it doesn't, ask yourself why. Les Miles' days of being the grass-eating, dosekis representing, hair-dying, never-say-never, quirky coach, those are long gone. He was fired from Kansas at roughly like 11 p.m. Eastern time on Monday night. Little Monday night news dump. Thanks Kansas football for being relevant and doing that. That was days after he was just put on administrative leave, which we knew that was the beginning of the end. This was the result of 
the release of the 2013 LSU investigation into multiple sexual harassment claims against him made by female student employees within the LSU athletic department. It was a 33-page report from Baton Rouge-based law firm Taylor Porter. That only came to light because after an agreement with all parties involved that it would stay under wraps, Miles and his attorney agreed to have it released, likely as a result of rumors about his role in LSU's other Title IX protocol investigation, which is just a, a wild thing to think about, and I have more to get on that later. But if you haven't read the Taylor Porter report, you should. At least read what the law firm found. You'll see that after LSU lost to Alabama 21-0 in the title game at the end of the 2011 season, Les Miles took more control over the program. What's more control? Like fixing the offense that just got shut out in the natty? Nope. Um, he didn't change the offense, which, by the way, had zero touchdowns and 120 minutes of football against Alabama. He didn't fire a single on-staff assistant. What did Les Miles change after losing in the national championship? Try and narrow that gap between LSU and Alabama. He took a more direct role in the hiring process. Let me clarify that. He wanted to hire more female student-athletes to work in the recruiting department who had a certain look. That is, attractive, blonde, and fit. He also, in case that wasn't bad enough, he wanted those not in that camp to be phased out because that's what was needed to narrow the gap between LSU and Alabama. I know what some of you might be thinking. LSU isn't the first or the last program to do that to a certain extent. Sadly, that's the way that many have operated, and that's a very common thing to a certain extent. That still doesn't make it okay. By the way, the Hush Blackwell report that came out on Friday, which investigated LSU's Title IX protocol for the last decade, it said that Miles claimed the previous student female employees looked like a bad bowling team, and he demanded they be replaced with blondes with the big boobs and pretty girls, hence the Hooters reference. Several athletic department employees also said that only certain ones could be talked to in Les Miles' offense, in his office, not his offense. What the hell, man? This is the man who is the highest paid public employee in the state of Louisiana. He's coming off a national title appearance and he's already got that ring. And Les Miles saw nothing wrong with that. He still didn't see anything wrong with that. But wait, it gets worse. Because the whole reason that this investigation was launched was because multiple female student employees claimed that he sexually harassed them. One claimed that he picked her up in his car and that he offered to get a hotel room to discuss her career aspirations and that he kissed her multiple times. Les Miles denied the kissing in the hotel part, but what he acknowledged was that he picked up a female student employee in his car after reaching out via text and via Facebook and going for a drive so that they can discuss her career aspirations. Buddy, I've seen every episode of To Catch a Predator ever made. You know what the creeps trying to hook up with the minors say every single time? That they want to mentor them. Miles, however, saw no harm in that whatsoever. That was actually the second complaint against Les Miles. The first came because one student employee was asked to babysit for Miles' kids at his condo. And so she went over there only to realize that Les Miles was staying and he was playing with his kids. So he invited her to go to a, see a movie with them. Again, that's not disputed by Les Miles. This girl even spent the night at Les Miles' place one time because apparently there was something wrong in her apartment. Les Miles' wife recommended that she stay there. But then there was also something about a window getting broken during her stay and Miles wanted her to stick around after when it was being repaired. She, not surprisingly, was super uncomfortable with that. 
That's why Joe Oliva, former LSU athletic director at the time, uh, said, hey, Les, yeah, you can't talk to female student employees anymore. Just don't talk to any student employees anymore. No more one-on-one -on -one meetings. No more texting them. That includes the phone, reaching out to them with that, which, which was had a number that neither Oliva nor Les's personal assistant even had. Don't do any of that stuff anymore. There's actually another female student employee who Miles reached out to, and she's like, uh, what do I do? And everyone that she talked to in the athletic department was like, yeah, don't respond to that. They knew. The entire athletic department got sexual harassment training. Les got counseling. He still violated that and ignored Joe Oliva. As we found out, thanks to the Hush Blackwell report, Oliva sent an email to the LSU president and council that basically said, hey, everyone, we need to fire Les Miles. He was insubordinate. We can fire him with cause. We don't have to pay that $15 million buyout, and we should, because what's going to be worse? Firing him now and having to justify it or having this come out years from now and having everyone realize that we protected him LSU didn't even listen to its own athletic director and as it turned out Joe Oliva was right on the money This is an awful look for LSU eight years later in hindsight Yeah, Les Miles should have been fired in 2013 But what about the Taylor Porter report because that was the whole reason that Miles was like, yeah Let's let this come to light. They said that I didn't need to be fired the reason that they said that is because they thought that they'd lose in court because of the sexual harassment claims and that Miles would actually still be owed the $15 million buyout and it would just be a mess for all parties involved. Plus, there was the fact that LSU Brass would have to actually fire the guy with a ring in two title game appearances. So they took the path of least resistance. It was much easier for him. That's why Les and his attorney we're like, we're gonna be good. We're gonna be protected. And we're, everyone's gonna see, this is all being blown way out of proportion. There's a very murky area in the contract that Les Miles signed at LSU. It basically says a coach has to act in according with the high moral, ethical, and academic standards of the university and not participate in any serious misconduct which brings the coach into public disrepute sufficient to impair the coach's ability to continue in his position without adverse impact on the university's football program or reputation. It's pretty hard to violate that clause of the contract if the public never finds out about it until eight years later. If that comes out in 2013, you're out of your mind if you think that that's just another ho-hum headline and Les Miles is just gonna continue recruiting top five classes. Instead, Les Miles was allowed to continue to develop his reputation nationally. He gets to continue to recruit and coach like nothing's happened. He got to do those commercials. He got to be one of the sports celebrities. Even people who covered him and knew him well, like Sports Illustrated's Ross Dellinger, they weren't privy to this information. Ross wrote this piece for Sports Illustrated last week, and it was titled, A Dark Secret, A Systemic Failure at LSU and the Less Miles I Thought I Knew. Listen, Ross Dellinger breaks as much news as anyone in this business. He talks to power brokers, and when it comes to LSU, I imagine it's really, really difficult to keep anything from that guy. The point is, he knew Les Miles well, or at least he thought he did. He didn't know about any of this. He didn't know about this side of Les Miles until USA Today put together that really impressive investigative report a few months ago. LSU hit everything. Only six LSU officials knew about this. And as Ross wrote in his piece, that included three members of the LSU Board of Supervisors who told no one, not even their own colleagues on the board. Nobody knows 
what Miles and one of the LSU student employees settled for because according to the Baton Rouge Advocate, it does not turn up in searches of Baton Rouge court records. Goodness gracious. What a massive cover-up. And in case you're thinking to yourself, why don't the victims go public with this? Some people think that every sexual harassment slash assault case is a scam. Like these people wake up one day and they say, oh, I'm a little hard up for some cash. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna organize a coup and try and extort the most powerful public employee in the state. That'll end well for me. These people don't go public because they want to live normal lives. They don't want the first thing that comes up when you Google them to be about a sexual harassment claim. They don't want people threatening them on social media. So think about all of these elements and it's scary how easy it is to protect people like Miles. This is blatant abuse of power. This is the single scariest slash worst thing about this world of college football that we have created. Everything favors abuse of power. And this is places across the country, right? Like, you know, I know Ryan Rosillo has talked about this a lot, about how these coaches feel like almost like dictators in these small college towns. And who's going to, nobody tells them no. They get to do whatever they want. And we've seen it happen at places across the country in different situations over the last decade. You, you got Ohio State, Urban Meyer, his whole handling of the Zach Smith deal. You got Penn State with the Jerry Sandusky scandal. You got Baylor with Art Bryles and 51 alleged rapes by 32 football players in a four year stretch. You've got even Michigan State, which isn't a blue blood by any stretch of the imagination. You've got Mark D'Antonio turning a blind eye to Title IX protocols and allowing sexual assault claims to fall through the cracks. LSU joined that club. This whole Les Miles deal is actually part of the bigger issue in Baton Rouge. This was just supposed to be a subsection of the USA Today report. The Hush Blackwell investigation confirmed that reporting, by the way. So for all you who defended Les Miles and Coach O when this first came out, remember that. These things don't just come out of thin air. What we do know, looking back on all of this now, having multiple private law firms investigate these things, is that winning was valued above all else, as is often the case, too often the case. The Darius Guy stuff, perfect example of that. That dude was never so much as suspended multiple sexual assault claims against him at LSU. Imagine being a 70-year-old woman and calling up an LSU coach. By the way, we don't know who the LSU coach was that she called up. After being sexually harassed by Darius Geis at a high school football game, only to hear at the other end, hear the coach say, well, you know, he had a tough upbringing and he's probably just messing around. And then the coach says to you, well, what do you want, an apology? Then she never hears anything after that ever again. The issue was reported. There was never any investigation. I don't know if we'll ever find out the full extent of what was covered up and what wasn't. What's clear is that LSU was part of the bigger issue in big revenue sports. Who are you protecting? Are you protecting the people who are being wronged? Or are you protecting the ability to fill that stadium so that every single time people say, what's the best venue in college football? They're gonna respond automatically, Death Valley at night. We know the answer to that question. Two separate law firms investigating both Miles and LSU confirmed that. And in case you were wondering, the Hush Blackwell report, it disagreed with Taylor Porter. It believed that LSU had the grounds to fire Miles with cause. It did, there's no doubt it did. Shoot, so did Kansas. And none of that even occurred while he was there. Kansas should just fire itself, by the way. Jeff Long, shout out to Arkansas. He's the one who hired Miles. That's his Michigan buddy. He's like, I don't need a search firm. Get that crap out of here. I'm gonna hire my buddy. This makes it look really bad for him too with all that because it makes it look like he didn't even call up Joe Oliva and say, hey, 
Anything that I should probably know about that guy? Because from the look of that email that Joe Oliva sent the important people at LSU, Joe Oliva would have told everyone about, or he would have at least told his potential future employer about, yeah, Les Miles, he has some skeletons in his closet. For all we know, Joe Oliva actually did tell other people about that, and that's why Les Miles didn't get a head coaching job until the worst Power 5 program in America called him over two years later after he got fired from LSU. The most sickening thing about all of this, Les Miles doesn't even get it. He still doesn't get it. That's why he let this investigation's findings come out eight years later. His vision was blurred because he was and still is drunk on his own power. It took nearly a decade to find this out. I wish I could say something like this whole thing won't happen anymore. But like, I, I wish I could say that the rise of the Me Too movement and our awareness of coaches abusing power to cover up sexual misconduct, I wish that it would change this and we would be more privy to this in the 2020s. But it seems like it's only a matter of time before we get another stomach-churning reminder of the system that we've helped create. Will, as an LSU guy, is it, is it hard for you to now look back at the Les Miles years knowing what he was built up to be and knowing his attitude and the way that he treated human beings? Yeah, <clears throat> no, for sure. And it's, um, you know, Coach O always talks about it with Louisiana. It's such a, it's such a community-driven state. It's such a place that you feel all connected by LSU. And Les Miles is a guy who, you know, the, he stayed a little bit past his welcome because he was supposed to be a good guy. And, you know, he got carried off the field and it was this whole like, oh, like old Uncle Les. And it's like we almost saw him as this, it was like he was, it was almost like he was this pure kind of, I'm trying to think about the word to use for it, but he was naive. It was like the world changed around him. He didn't realize it. And that's why I love, it, it took me off guard whenever you said, what if I told you his offense wasn't, was one of his more pro, uh, progressive views. I can't imagine Les Miles preparing anything to this level. And it blows my mind to think like, yeah, like this is the guy that, you know, I grew up and he was, you know, he was the first LSU coach that I really followed in the media that I really like felt like, you know, you knew who he was. And like, like you said, he even, he even um, confused Ross Dellinger. So yeah, at the end of the day for something like this, it's the biggest thing is, you know, the victims, honestly, the biggest thing is, it's not about college football, it's about human beings. And even within that, it's the human beings that are affected by college football. And as an LSU fan, if you're online and you're just like trying to defend this man, just log off. Uh, if, you know, even if that's how you feel, they, you know, they always say the truth will come out. But like you said, I mean, it's just, there's, there's too much smoke. And it's, you just gotta look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, what, what's the value of all this? So it's tough, it's a tough story. And that, that's really all there is to it. I think that this is a good reminder that as much as we can be sold on specific head coaches and look like we, Eli Drinkwitz, Sam Pittman, like I'm, I'm talking about how much I love Sam Pittman and how much I love this coach and that coach and how I'd go play for this guy and that guy. We only know what they want us to see. And that's something that we need to constantly remember as we consume these things. Because there's no rule that says that we have to align our specific beliefs or whatever it is. And that's going to sound preachy or whatever. Like I get that. But there's always that arm's length that we need to have between ourselves and these coaches who are running programs and are making decisions that they feel are in the best interest of their program and they're doing whatever they can to try and win a national championship. And sometimes we as fans will hook onto that concept and that concept alone. And if you are able to look back on this and say, well, he was just doing what he felt 
he needed to do in order to advance the program, man, that's, that's a tough thing to be committed to. And we don't have to be committed to everything that these, these human beings do. And the sad thing is that, look, Les Miles created a very specific image of himself over the years. And, you know, everybody kind of chucked, chucked, chucked it up as being Uncle Les. And, you know, we see the, the commercials and, and what he was portrayed as. And it's just so different when you find out stuff like this. And, and to be honest, like, I don't know what, what Les Miles does from here other than like, just, just, just chill, enjoy the money that you've made off this profession, enjoy the people that you have, that you have fooled and enjoy the fact that you have made money off of, off of doing that while not necessarily holding up your end of the bargain as a human being. That's again, that's going to sound preachy. I don't intend it to, but like Les Miles' days as a head coach are probably gone. At least they are definitely in FBS football. I don't think there's any question about that. And you know, maybe he gets to coach a high school team one day. I don't know. His acting career, that's a tough thing to be able to get on board with. If you're going to hire him to come on board your set in the Me Too movement, good luck with that. Um, and I, well, look, nobody's trying to cancel anybody, but we should be able to find out this information. And this isn't something that we should just be made aware of eight years after the fact. So that's kind of where I stand on this. I know I got a little bit heated, a little bit fired up on that, but um, I know a lot of people have a lot of, a lot of different less thoughts. So totally shifting gears here, my all bang the drum team. And I want to be a little bit more positive here because I realized that was, that was pretty negative. A lot of that as well, but you know, comes with the territory. So I've been thinking about the best way to phrase this. And I've got one guy for every team that I find myself banging the drum for in the preseason. And this can be in a different way. Like some of these guys, I think will be breakout guys. They're gonna be guys that we're talking about at the end of the year, and maybe they're competing for an all conference spot. Others, I think already broke out more than some realized. And then there's like the rare group of dudes on this list who should probably getting preseason All-America discussion and they aren't. The point is, whatever bandwagon there is for each one of these guys, I want to be the one leading it. So here's the all-bang-the-drum team. Alabama, Jaleel Billingsley, the tight end. I'll admit that part of this is just because every time he touches the ball, all I want to say is Billingsley, Billingsley, party at Taylor's house, now Billingsley. <laughs> and there's another part of me that's like, hey, Chicago area kid, that's also pretty cool. Bama fans love this guy, absolutely love this guy. Uh, it seemed like only good things happen when he touched the ball. That actually checks out. And not just because he's out here like hurdling dudes at 230 pounds, he's returning kicks as a tight end. 78% of his catches went for a first down. Pro Football Focus had Alabama quarterbacks with a passer rating of 158.3 when targeting him. The last six games of the year, 17 catches, 274 yards, three touchdowns. That's as a backup tight end. Miller Forstall, he gone. Big, big year ahead for Billingsley in Bill O'Brien's offense, which utilizes the tight end a lot. Arkansas, Traylon Burks. Traylon Burks hunts hogs with a knife. Cole Kublik, oh man, I just, I love that soundbite so much. I really do, I really do. In my opinion, he's wide receiver one in the SEC for 2021. And John Mechie is the only returning receiver in the SEC with more yards than Burks. Mechie also had four more games and he only had 96 more yards. That's kind of here nor there. The catch radius with Traylon Burks is insane. That one-handed toe-tapping catch that he had against Ole Miss, Yo, like that was that was something special. And he has this coordination that's off the charts. All state high school athlete in four different sports. 
Then the guy gets to college, he adds 30 pounds to the frame, 6'3", 230, lines up in the slot and just wrecks dudes. And what about that whole concern about like, oh, is production going to dip with a new quarterback? Remember the Mizzou game? Because that was with KJ Jefferson. Jefferson completed 18 passes that game. 10 of them went to Burks. He had 274 passing yards that game. 206 of them went to Traylon Burks. He is a legitimate first-round receiver talent. Give me Traylon Burks over George Pickens. Auburn, Nehemiah Pritchett. A lot of unknowns with Auburn in the beginning of the Brian Harson era, and I think we're going to wait and see how that plays out. But two things that I am confident in with this team. One is that Tank Bigsby is going to be really, really good. And the other is that I think the secondary is going to be excellent. I think Derek Mason could be the 2021 version of Barry Odom, actually. That is, fired head coach who thrives getting to focus just on defense. That's going to benefit Pritchett. He established himself as a true lockdown corner for Auburn. They had so much turnover in that area last year. He played 531 snaps on the outside. He was a true number two corner for that team. He actually had more defended passes than Patrick Sertan. Patrick Sertan, I realize a lot of people avoid him, so that's probably not a totally fair comp. But obviously... Pritchett is somebody who really, really burst on the scene for Auburn. Number five, Pro Football Focus had him among returning SEC quarterbacks in terms of his grade. He also graded north of 77 in, in coverage and against the run. Auburn, the secondary is just going to be really good. They, they added the West Virginia transfer, Dresha Miller as well. Loaded, loaded secondary. Florida, Will, you're going to love this one. Desmond Watson, defensive tackle. So I... Little peel behind the onion here, shameless plug, whatever you want to call it. I just wrote about this guy. He's an early enrollee. Florida fans already know who he is, but if not, here's the rundown. Dude is 432 pounds. Damn boy, he thick. <laughs> he is 432 pounds. Watch some of the videos because the lower half, like his hips are just massive. I talked to his high school coach last week. And he said, this guy just gets into full catcher stance, front squatting 375 pounds like it's no big deal. Like this dude is just a tank. He's going to get down to 380 pounds. That's like what he played at in high school. They listed him as like 330. He played way north of that. Dan Mullen gets to camp and he's like, yeah, he's got to lose a 12 or a 13 year old to get in the right shape. Um, I I think that's going to happen. This dude is so good on his feet though. He had 34 tackles for loss as a junior in high school. He played 90 to 95% of their snaps. Now, I realize doing that in high school is way different than doing it in college. He's got to get the conditioning up. Talked to some people who saw him in scrimmage and said, yeah, that's still a major issue, but that's why he got there in January. Didn't wait till July, early enrollee. Kids going to get into the, the strength and conditioning program. They, they have a need at defensive tackle there. But seriously, watch some of those videos if you have not. Search Desmond Watson on Twitter, and you'll see these videos of him going up against like these grown men that Florida has, and it takes two seconds to be able to figure out, oh, yep, that, that's the guy right there. Uh, lower half, just un, unreal. His comp is Terrence Cody. Now, look, I'm not saying he's going to be Mount Cody 2.0. Not saying that. Guy was a two-time All-American at, at Bama. Watson is probably going to end up playing like 20 to 30 pounds heavier than him, but could play immediately for this team because Marlon Dunlap, Kyrie Campbell, they are both gone, and they have that need at defensive tackle rotational guy he's going to be. I think he makes a handful of TFLs as a true freshman. I think he has a handful of moments that Florida fans are like, oh my gosh, this kid's going to be special. Yeah, that's well, a you guy. you got some thoughts? The, the, I just universally root for the chunky athlete. That's why, that's why I love Zion. I love like, if, it's just, I, I hope, I wish this guy had nothing but success. 
I, I think he's got a bright future. I think he really does. I think he's, he's got the right mindset to be able to get some of that weight down as well. Georgia, Kiaris Jackson. I don't want this to be an anti-George Pickens thing. I know I said something anti-Pickens earlier. But he gets so much more shine than Kiaris Jackson. And, and look, I get it. Like George is going to stretch the field a lot more with JT Daniels and Pickens, the way that he finished the year really well yet again. I just think that we dismiss Kiaris Jackson's value in that offense because the route running and the hands are absolutely next level. He didn't have a drop in all 48 targets. Given the fact that he played with three different quarterbacks last year, that is pretty darn good. We weren't talking about him really much at all. Ashley, I know some Georgia fans were, were optimistic about him, but you know, in terms of SEC-wide, we really weren't talking about him coming into last year because he broke his hand in the 2019 opener against Vandy, and then he didn't finish the year like Pickens did this past season. But people forget he did have those two catches of 40-plus with Daniels as the quarterback. He can stretch the field and do so from the slot. I just find myself saying, like, whenever people, and I know Brad Crawford, my guy, who I love Brad, but he's got George Pickens, like number one receiver in the SEC. And I'm like, um, I just look at that and I'm like, I'm still not totally convinced that George Pickens is the best receiver on his own team. And Kyrus Jackson's a big part of that. Kentucky. Talked about this guy a little bit before. I'm going to talk a lot about him in the offseason. I just think he needs so much more run and so much more shine. Chris Rodriguez, the man they call C-Rod. They used to call him Little Benny. He doesn't like that. Don't do that. I wrote about him a couple months ago. He's the highest-graded returning running back in America. Kentucky fans love them some C-Rod. He's actually never started a game for Kentucky, and that's part of the reason why he came back. First-generation college student as well, wants to get the degree, all that as well. He would have had NFL interest this past year because he is so explosive in between the tackles. He doesn't necessarily have that initial like two, three-step burst, but he takes off when he gets to the second level. He had some home run plays last year where you're like, oh, this dude is running away from a safety. And at 225 pounds, just a nightmare to have to bring down. He is ready for a full workload. He used to have games in high school where, get this, Will, he used to get 51 carries in a, in a game in high school. He only had 20 carries in a game once at Kentucky. That was actually against Georgia, his home state school, ironically enough. Final four games of last year, 64 carries, 480 yards, seven touchdowns. I Look, I, I know that they lose big Drake Jackson in the middle. He was so important for that team on the offensive line. And I know that they aren't going to run all these, these, these zone reads up the middle. This isn't Eddie Grant's offense anymore. It's Liam Cohen's offense. But it's still going to feature him a ton. I think C-Rod's also going to benefit from not seeing as many loaded boxes, which he did countless times at Kentucky. Still ran for over six yards a carry. He's, he's going to be forgotten about in the preseason. And I get it because the SEC, it has so many backs returning this year who are going to get national attention. Tank Bigsby, Zamir White, Kevin Harris, Isaiah Spiller, Brian Robinson, Jerry Neely. Just don't forget about C-Rod. LSU, Miles Brennan. Speaking of forgotten guys, Max Johnson's finish quieted the offseason discussion about Brennan. Will, have you seen the pictures of Brennan in spring practice? Shout out to Tommy Moffat at LSU because 224 pounds. Have, have you seen him? He's I, I'm not saying he's getting a chunk level, but like, dude, is thick now. For a quarterback, yeah, he's he's a chunk. And it's like, <laughs> you love to see it, man. He looks like a happy boy. I love the comparison of like when he got out of high school and now and he just looks like he oh, ate yeah. an entire human. <laughs> dude has put on the weight and that, that won't necessarily be the topic of discussion 
uh, in terms of uh, the way that we view Brennan, which is good. I'm sure that he he's he's sick of that. That's kind of beside the point. Brennan getting hurt and LSU's defense made us sort of forget that he was pretty good in that first part of the season. The only SEC quarterbacks who graded higher than Brennan, and I realize it's limited sample size, Pro Football Focus had Mac Jones, Kyle Trask, Matt Corral, JT Daniels, only guys graded better than Miles Brennan in terms of quarterbacks. He had 11 touchdown passes and over 1,100 passing yards in those three games, eight and a half yards attempt. Yeah, he took too many sacks in that first game. I know there are people like Booger McFarland saying, kid's not ready, kid's not ready. I get it, Max Johnson, he's better on the move. But man, I, I thought he was so good after week one. Coach O says that he looks phenomenal in the early part of camp. I, I get there's a competition with Max Johnson. Max Johnson could easily be the starting quarterback at LSU. But I am not selling my Miles Brennan stock. And I think I, I still think that he has all SEC upside. Mississippi State. Martin Emerson. In terms of SEC position groups that I have confidence in, MSU secondary, it's not number one. I'm not saying it's number one. But it's up there. And part of that is Zach Garnett returning for that 3-3-5 in that defense. I think we're, we, we think about the Georgia game a lot. And we, we kind of view the MSU secondary as like, all right, they had their issues in that game. JT Daniels torched them. Even though there wasn't really film on JT Daniels yet and they sort of were on their heels the entire time. MSU returns a ton of talent and production in the secondary. Emmanuel Forbes was a freshman All-American. He actually led the SEC in interceptions. But I went with Emerson here. Did you know that Emerson graded out better than Malachi Moore? Malachi Moore, who is fantastic and carved out a role as a true freshman in Alabama secondary and was so good for that team. Pro Football Focus had Emerson as the number five grade among power five cornerbacks. He actually led the SEC with 11 pass breakups. The guy had 72 tackles in just 11 games. Didn't have an interception, but super disruptive no matter where he lines up. There's this clip that sort of perfectly describes why the MSU secondary just kind of works. It was this play against Mizzou where uh, Emerson's playing boundary corner and he blitzes off the edge and he gets to Connor Basilek and then Forbes steps in, easy interception. That's kind of what they're going to try and do and the way that they're going to try and confuse defenses. I know Auburn fans, what about the time that Seth Williams dunked on him after he was the guy talking smack? Everybody saw that video. That happened. Yeah, Seth Williams had a touchdown, very next play, whatever. That was one play. Martin Emerson, really good. So was the Mississippi State secondary. Mizzou, Blaze Aldrich takes a certain type of human being to be named Blaze. Blaze is usually the guy who snowboards. Blaze refers to his parents by their first names. Blaze doesn't believe in speed limit signs. He doesn't do the no turn on red thing. This Blaze is replacing Nick Bolton. Big shoes to fill, of course, but a savvy, savvy move by Eli Drinkwitz to go into the transfer portal and get the linebacker from Rice. In his last full season in 2019, and keep in mind this is Conference USA, 102 tackles, 21.5 tackles for loss. He had more plays result in a loss than anyone in FBS. I know, again, Conference USA is a bit undersized, and I know that Ryan Walters isn't there anymore, defensive coordinator, but new defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes, he's going to be able to lean heavily on Aldridge. I know Drinkowitz has some big expectations for his transfers with Aldridge. He's got the Ohio State kid, Mookie Cooper. He's got the, the Oklahoma lineman as well. Drinkowitz, super, super high on all of these guys. I am highest on Blaze Aldridge. And by the way, stop what you're doing and Google Blaze Aldridge as a recruit, and then Google Blaze Aldridge Mizzou bio, 
and you'll see the pictures side by side. Tell me that Blaze Aldridge didn't become such a Blaze in the last few years. Big time Blaze. Ole Miss, I mean, you already know. Come on, it's John Rice Plumley. Duh. I'll forever be Team John Rice. Even though I can admit Matt Corral is the right guy at quarterback, I won't dispute that. I just really hope that when John Rice Plumley is done you know, smashing dingers for Ole Miss baseball, I hope that he spends even more time with the receivers this year. I want all the John Rice packages. I hope so, so much that the Outback Bowl was just a sign of more to come. He is so fast and so special with the ball in his hands. Will, John Rice, this is a comp you're going to love. John Rice is like what Sean Payton thinks Taysom Hill is. <laughs> See, I knew you were going to say that too, and I agree. Like We talked about him before. It's another guy. I'll root for him no matter what. Even with these torch in LSU, it's just like, what a fun guy. And not Taysom Hill. Definitely not Taysom Hill. John Rice Plumley is actually sort of what Tate Martell was supposed to be. And that's the last time I'll ever use those two in the same sentence. Yeah, these no cops are getting worse. We love him. He's not no. Tate Martell. <laughs> He's not Tate Martell. Definitely not. South Carolina. Uh, popular, more popular name than, than a lot of the others on this list. But Kevin Harris. Harris is a guy that I shouldn't have to bang the drum for. But I feel like I do. I especially do after seeing Pro Football Focus not have him in the top 10 returning running backs in America. I, I think that he's another guy who just won't get enough buzz in this offseason with all those big name running backs, especially in the SEC. And part of that is because his team sucked and he wasn't a blue chip recruit. I get it. That doesn't take away his production against SEC talent, though. Brees Hall, the Iowa State guy, only returning running back in FBS with more rushing yards last year. Harris did that for a totally one-dimensional offense. He ripped off over 1,100 yards in 10 games. He had 15 touchdowns. He had 6.2 yards per carry. Did I mention that offense was totally one-dimensional and it sucked? I think first-team All-SEC running back is a fascinating conversation. It's going to go in a lot of different directions. I would probably go, if I'm picking today, I'd probably go Kevin Harris and I'd either go with Tank Bigsby or Chris Rodriguez. But I would definitely have Harris there. Harris would be the guy. I'd put him ahead of Zamir White, Brian Robinson, and those guys. Just because we've already seen him. We've already seen him do it. Guy needs to be getting more shine in the preseason. Tennessee. This is tough. But I've come around on this guy. Hendon Hooker. Who's Hendon Hooker, you ask? For those casual SEC fans. Not, not a guy who has SEC experience because he's a transfer quarterback from Virginia Tech. I'll just go ahead and say this, knowing that it could be another Malik Willis situation. I'm not saying it's going to be, but I think Hendon Hooker is Tennessee's QB1 this year, and I think he could potentially be like one of those like 8 to 10 ranking guys in terms of SEC quarterbacks if we're doing quarterback rankings. I think he's going to be pretty good. And the irony is that Malik Willis actually beat Hooker when he was at Virginia Tech last year. Um, I've gone back and forth on this a lot, but the more I think about Hooker's skill set, the more I think that he's ready for Josh Heupel's system. It's one or two reads, then make something happen with your legs if it's not there. It's knowing how to look off a safety and then being able to come back to your second read. Hooker did those things at Virginia Tech. He also averaged seven yards per designed run, which is pretty good. The irony is that Hooker transferred to Tennessee before Pruitt was fired. He actually could wind up being the favorite of this new staff. Harrison Bailey, I know we're excited about him. I know those 10-second clips of him are still probably going to go viral this offseason about his progression, but I just don't think that he can process quick enough yet to be able to play in Josh Heifel's offense. Caden Salter, the incoming freshman, very excited about what he could be down the road 
potential Dylan Gabriel type in that offense. I still think he needs a year to be able to get bigger and to be able to read SEC defenses. Hooker, he can play within the structure of the offense really well, and he can make things happen when it breaks down too. Tennessee needs someone who can do that this year. The arm strength, probably a little bit better than what the numbers suggest. Maybe a little bit of coaching up from that offensive staff is going to help out his mechanics. He just had such a herky-jerky year to at Virginia Tech. Like, had a medical issue pop up during COVID screening that they kind of wanted to keep hush-hush. Still, he missed the per- first part of the year. But, you know, weird finish for him as well. Two years of starting experience at Power 5 level. And Josh Heupel has done a really, really good job of adapting to his quarterback's I think Hooker could be the guy for the entire year for Tennessee, which would be a rare, rare thing in Knoxville these days. Texas A&M, Jalen Watermeyer, my guy, the tight end. I put Watermeyer on here because he should be a unanimous preseason All-American. It's simple. He's the best returning tight end in college football. Put up really similar numbers to Charlie Kohler from a receiving perspective. That's the Iowa State guy. But what I think can't be overstated is what Weidemeyer would do making catches in traffic. If you watch some of the clips of him, guy was just always making that big time play. So reliable for Kellen Mond. And Weidemeyer was one of seven returning tight ends with a 70 plus grade as a receiver and as a run blocker. And of the guys in that group of seven, he's the only one that had 250 receiving yards and multiple touchdowns last year. What I love is that the guy never leaves the field. He played in 13 fewer snaps than Kellen Mond did last year. He also played 173 more snaps than Charlie Kohler. In late game scenarios, I'll make a basketball reference for you. He's like the big guy who can shoot free throws. So you can keep him out there. Remember Devon Chain, his run that he had in the Orange Bowl to sink UNC? It was Weidemeyer who had that big block that set him free. Again, my opinion, best returning tight end in all of college football should be a unanimous preseason All-American. Vandy. Cam Johnson, receiver. Here's a wild stat for you. From October 25th to December 13th, Cam Johnson had 47 catches. That was second best in FBS. He actually had more catches last year than any returning SEC wide receiver. Target Machine, which as we know, young quarterback, that's their best friend. He had 56 catches playing in just nine games. Now he gets an entire offseason to be able to work with Ken Seals, Normal offseason potentially also gets David Rye, who specializes in coaching up receivers. Vandy also hired Earl Bennett, former Vandy great, um, in one of those like director of player development roles. So like that for him as well. Johnson had a higher pro football focus receiving grade than all of these guys. Keishon Butte, George Pickens, Trayvon Grimes, John Mechie, Seth Williams. But it's Vandy, and yeah, it hurts when your team doesn't win a game. One for the road. One more for the road, Wondale Robinson, uh, Nebraska transfer. I wrote earlier that he could be the most impactful non-quarterback transfer in America. SEC fans should know who Rondell Moore is, Purdue receiver. Caught a bunch of passes whenever he was on the field in Jeff Brom's offense. That's what Rondell, Wondell Robinson was supposed to be. He and, um, he and Rondell Moore are actually boys too, ironically enough. He is just such a unique weapon. He's going to be like the Robert Woods in that offense with Liam Cohen at Kentucky. You can use some of that creativity with him in the ground game, but mainly he's going to give Kentucky a major playmaker in the passing game. Breaks tackles left and right. Only 5'10", but just so explosive. Players this good usually don't hit the transfer portal, but he didn't really like how he was being used at Nebraska. They ran him way too much. That's not what he signed up for. He's not... It's not built to run against like seven and eight man fronts, like which is all Nebraska would do. 
So got to figure out the eligibility thing at Kentucky, but think he's going to be able to, to play right away. He did transfer to play in his home state. So Wondell Robinson won for the road. There it is, my all bang the drum team. Will, is there one guy that kind of stands out for you, all bang the drum team? It can be an LSU guy. That's fine. Anybody that you're like, no, 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 no. This oh, guy's better man. than you guys are giving him credit for. I don't know, man. I put like, you on the spot. Like I said, I'm, I'm all the way in on that Florida DT. Um, obviously very excited about Keishon Boutte. I just, I think that this is going to be a really, really fun year coming up, man. Cause there are so many guys who have transferred. There are so many guys who have stayed an extra year. This is going to be like a real like saturation and talent in the SEC coming up. That's a good overarching take. I like that. I like that. That's really good. Really good. All bang the drum team. There you have it. Let's go to first. We're going to do my interview with Reese Davis. And then on the back end, we'll talk some SEC hoops with Adam Spencer. So first. Reese Davis. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Reese Davis. Reese, I, I've got a, I've got a ton that I want to get into with you, but first I've, I've got a little story. So before the 2019 opener between Florida and Miami, game day was here in my neck of the woods in Orlando. And there was one of those Friday media sessions at one of the Disney hotels where we got to talk to you, Kirk, Lee, and Laura. We all got to talk individually. It was one of those. And, uh, you came out and I realized, oh crap, we're basically wearing the exact same light pink polo. And I sort of sheepishly said to you like, hey, great minds think alike or something stupid like that. So before we start today, I wanted to make sure that we didn't do it again. I am wearing an Orlando Magic t-shirt, a retro t-shirt. What are you wearing? I'm not. I'm wearing a, uh, I'm wearing a gray merino wool sweater because it's probably a lot colder where I am than where you are. So... While uh, while I admire your fashion sense, in this case we didn't uh, we didn't choose the same clothes. All right, that's good. That's good. You uh, <laughs> you just you just signed a new deal at ESPN, which means that you're going to be on all of our TVs every Saturday morning in the fall for the foreseeable future. I remember talking to Feinbaum after he got his new deal done, and he just seemed like it was such a huge relief, just something that, that he could get off his shoulders. You've been at ESPN now for a quarter century, which I'm sure is a weird thought in itself, but you're, you're such a main part of so many of our sports viewing lives. But I, I think we also take for granted that these things are never a certainty. And I'd argue now that there's probably more competition than ever in the sports media world for top on-air talent. You said that this was the best job in the world, and I truly believe you when you say that. But was there ever a legitimate decision for you to make with all this? I think the best way, Connor, to answer that is that once you reach a certain stage in your career, you're wise to not close any doors and not be so myopic that even as much as I love my job, that you say, well, you know, that's it is beyond the realm of comprehension to, uh, you know, to consider other opportunities. Uh, should they come available? But in, in this particular case, um, they both sides, both uh, my representatives and, uh, and ESPN, were able to move expeditiously. And and before uh, you know, we got into um, the you know the last days of my current contract or anything like that. And you know, we were able to reach an agreement that you know that I feel like made everybody happy in terms of. Uh, you know, assignments that you get to do and kind of control over your whole life, which becomes uh, important as well. Uh, really important any time, but after you've been a place for a while, uh, maybe you have a little bit more latitude to be able to, uh, you know, be able to have out of season time off and more control of that. And 
you know, that's something that, that I've had with the last deal. We were able to take care of that and add some assignments that they, they would like for me to pursue and that I'm excited about. So, you know, it was, it was all, um, it, it was all done in a very professional way and in a way that I think made both sides happy. But even though I do love my job and I do think it's the best job in sports television, especially for someone who loves college football the way I do and it's something that I've grown up with, you know, it's been part of my life for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, it's, it's really important to me to be part of it in some way. And uh, I can't think of a better way than, than where I am, and I'm pleased to be able to stay. You've got to be on the short list of longest tenured ESPN employees. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and see if I can come up with a list of people who have been at ESPN longer than you, at least in terms of on-air talent. It's got to be Fowler, Dickie V, Linda Cohn. Those are the only three that I can come up with that have been at ESPN longer than you have. Is, is that right? Uh, two more that come to mind off the top of my head that are just slightly ahead of me uh, would be um, Steve Levy mm. and, uh, and Carl Ravitch, uh, both of them who have been there maybe a year or two longer. Uh, there's one other person who was also hired initially before I was, but she left for a period of time and then returned to Susie Calvert. So um, I, I don't know what Susie's grand total is right now. I think I'm probably ahead of her, uh, but because she, you know, she left for maybe three, four years. Um, but that's that would be pretty close too. She and I are probably pretty neck and neck. And I, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone else, but I, I think that's probably um, that's probably close to it. There might there might be a few analysts. I would have to look back and see exactly when Chris Mortensen started. Um, mm. You know, he might be one. Um, I I probably started a little bit, a few months before Herb Street. I'm not positive of that. Uh, our, you know, our very first assignments, I think his might have been football season of 95, although I could be wrong about that. And if so, then I, then I haven't beat in the door by, uh, by a few months anyway. Gosh, have you been, have you been at ESPN longer than Corso too? Oh no, that's right. And of course, Corso. Corso's been there longer than I have. Uh, so he was he started well before me, or I say well before they. Whenever he started, you know, he was part of the first road show on game day in 1993 for the Florida right. State Notre Dame game. And I was uh, I was working at WJRT in Flint, Michigan at that time. So yeah, LC's got LC's got me beat. LC's got us all beat at everything anyway. And of course, <laughs> and, you know, and, and obviously Chris Berman too. You know, I know. Chris has sort of been in, a, in an, an emeritus role right now, but you know he's he's you know the um, you know, he's the, the leader of us all in that capacity. All right, so there's more like a dozen. I probably should have done a little bit more homework on that one and not just gone off. The top no, that's of my head. okay. That's but all right. <laughs> I know what you're saying. You you were thinking more along the lines, and it does sort of uh, take me aback a little bit sometimes. You were thinking more along the lines of people who are kind of there a lot and maybe cross mm-hmm. over more than one sport. And, you know, among that, the, the list is about what you said. You could add, you know, you could add Stephen Carl to it, and that's about it, I think, in, in terms of, you know, people who aren't necessarily just sport-specific. If you looked at College Game Day six years ago, I think you'd see a similar product, but something that's definitely added some new dimensions to it. Chris Felica, a.k.a. Bear, who we've had on this podcast before, he's been an awesome addition with all the gambling knowledge that he drops. And I'm sure at one point it was like, 
gambling was such a faux pas to be able to talk about on air and now it's so mainstream and you guys have done something totally different by having pat mcafee and his energy on there Mm -hmm. as well it seems like whether we realize it or not the show is always sort of evolving what does college game day look like five to six years from now it's it's funny you bring that up i was just i just had a long conversation with one of our coordinating producers drew gallagher um, about just that very thing and I think the secret to the show is just what you said, is that it has evolved without um, doing a complete renovation because it doesn't need to be renovated. People, um, people like things with which they are familiar, but they also like to be uh, constantly entertained and they want the show to stay fresh. And finding that line between not blowing up what has worked so well uh, for the entire history of college game day, yet still being um, agile enough to to make changes, whether it is talking about gambling, whether it is bringing a personality like McAfee in, whether it's you know playing to Pollock's strengths, which are you know both uh, a little bit of a you know he's got a little uh, wild unpredictability side to him, but he's also one of the smartest. Of football people I've ever been around in terms of breaking down tape and, and so forth. You know, trying to find ways to accentuate those strengths keeps the show fresh. And that that's sort of the, the phrase that I've adopted over the last few years. We talk and have long email chains, and, and back in the days when we were allowed to meet, we would have meetings. And that's that's sort of my go-to word about it, is we have to keep it fresh. We we have to never let the viewers get bored because I think one thing that has changed over the course of my time at ESPN and really in the course of my time in television is that in the past you could see things starting to decline uh, with the show. I don't mean an hour show. I just mean generally speaking in television. You would see a show or uh, you know whatever it might be, lose it, and it, there was sort of a gradual uh, – decline of the show uh nowadays with as quick as people are to change it's just all of a sudden they don't watch something anymore and it's over you know and and we want our show to always be the show that if you aren't watching you might miss something you know we want we want to try to surprise you we want to tell you something you didn't you didn't know we want to give you access that uh, is not easily attained, and that's becoming more of a challenge as teams and, and coaches now control their own message going out with social media. And we want to give perspective you wouldn't have, and we want to try to do something that makes you laugh, that is genuine and not sticky. And you know, and we also want to tug at your heartstrings and tell you stories about people and, and what they are going through and as they are connected to college football. So all of those things have to be put into that mixing pot and and served up in just the right doses in order to keep people engaged and entertained and feeling like if they miss a segment of college game day, they might miss something, uh, you know, really important or really entertaining. In the near future, this this is a question I'm sure many people who are listening to this have on their minds, and I'm sure it's something that you've been asked and I, I don't even know if there's an answer to this yet but you know considering all the moving parts that are going on is college game day going to get back to having those normal crowds in 2021 or is that still too early to say it's still too early to say right now but it's certainly our hope 
uh, I, I tell you, Connor, here's my dream. I, I love to do the surge of adrenaline I get in doing those scene sets, the first things that bring the show onto the air that kind of uh, is my attempt to capture where we are or capture the stories of the day. Uh, my dream is to do the scene set in front of a gargantuan crowd of the magnitude like we had at Washington State or James Madison and just simply do the scene set while I'm crowd surfing from the back of the crowd up to the stage. You know, that would be amazing to be able to, to be to be with people again, and if it's safe to do so, uh, hopefully this year. If not, I'll, I'll promise to try to do it the next. Uh, you know, I, I hope that we're able to get back to that this year. Obviously, uh, safety and, and health and well-being and being responsible, all of that, I think it goes without saying that that's first and foremost. And paramount on our minds but i can't wait until the time comes when we can have those moments where we touch the crowd both literally and figuratively it's uh it's something that the show needs and i think it's part of uh what has made the show uh special over the years have you ever banged the drum for going to a specific place or being like hey lee we, we need to be able to, to make this happen. I know that X, Y, and Z just happened on this given college football Saturday, but next week, I really think that we should go here. Do you, do you have that kind of involvement in the site selection oh, yeah. process? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Was, I've always yeah. wondered about that. Like, is that an active conversation that you guys have? Yes. It's every, it's every week. And there are a lot of us that have input on it now, you know, it would be wrong to say that those of us on the air get to make the ultimate decision because there are, uh, you know, there are certainly business considerations and there are other things that factor in, but they, they take it very seriously what we want to do. And, and almost without fail during my six years on the show, uh, we've made the right decision. Um, it hasn't always, you know, I think people sometimes think that we just need to be at the game where the two lowest numbers are, meaning the highest ranked teams. And more times than not, that is a decent barometer, but it's not the only one. And there are times when there's a different story to tell. And there might be another opportunity for a different environment, a different way to uh, tell the story of the entire day of college football, the entire season and it's not just at the um, quote-unquote game of the week and then there are other little considerations too in an effort to harken back to what you and I just talked about to keep the show fresh let's say for instance I think this happened a couple of years ago actually we were at uh, Florida for Auburn Florida and then a couple of weeks later it was a, I think maybe Florida and LSU played or somebody and it was fairly significant and you think well why aren't they there well we were just there and, you know, we look ahead, too, and you, you have to make the decision as best you can on a weekly basis, but you're also wise to kind of look down the road and say, wait, now if we go to Alabama here, we're almost certainly going to be at Alabama then. So what's the better choice? Is it better to go now and then there's another option then, or is it better to go there twice? It's not like we can't. Or is it better to put, you know, to let this one go, maybe go to this game to give a little broader feel uh, but all of those things uh, come into play, and, and all of our management, you know, league fitting and and uh, Seth Markman and everybody who helps us make those decisions every week, even going on up to, uh, at times, you know, maybe even higher up the chain at ESPN, they, they've been terrific about listening to us because they, I think they respect 
our our sensibility about what's important for a particular college football Saturday. We just did a story on Saturday Down South with your former colleague, Ryan Rossillo, and he talked about his love for SEC football as someone who's from the Northeast and he didn't have that sort of affiliation, but he went to all those LSU-Bama games and he just realized, wow, this is, this is incredible. You've obviously got a different perspective as someone who grew up in the Southeast. And I'm not saying that this is some unanimous thing here where it's like, oh, you can go to a game at any SEC place and it's better than what it is across the country. Obviously, there are big time atmospheres all over the place. And not to go into the whole, it just means more cliche. But, you know, when somebody asks you, as someone who has been everywhere and you've seen everything, what, when someone asks you what's different about the SEC, what do you tell them? It's more part of people's everyday lives. It's not as much. I mean, it still is. Now, look, if you get the most ardent SEC fan in the world, the guy who's, who's calling Feinbaum, the guy who's on every uh, Twitter feed, the guy who's on every message board, they still have those, whatever they have them on Reddit or whatever they have, the guy who's on every one of them, even those, uh, even the most hardcore fans, even those people, and I guess I still believe in the innate goodness of people, they still have some perspective. They still care more about their families and, you know, and all of that kind of thing. But in the South, it is much more part of the DNA and the identity of people. And there's, not, there's nothing wrong with that. It's something that they value and cherish, that they take pride in. Uh, I grew up that way. It was a big part of who you were. You know, uh, you, uh, you know, you were in in my hometown. You were an Alabama fan, or you were an Auburn fan. You were an Alabama family, or an Auburn family. And certainly, you know, certainly there would be times when some members of the family group for one, and others group for the other. But it was part of it. You know, it was just part of. It was one of the early questions that people would get. And I changed schools a couple of times in elementary school. And that would be one of the first questions you would get from the kids when you were the new kid in school. You know, uh, are you and, – and they would often phrase it this way. Are you Alabama or Auburn? You know, that's what they would say. And you, and you answered. And then uh, if you answered in a way that agreed with the person asking the question, then all of a sudden you were buddies. And if you answered in a different way, they'd go, oh, man, they stink, or, you know, what's wrong with you, or, so, you know, whatever it might be. So it's much more part of the entire fabric and identity of the fans there. I'm not saying, and I, you do find it, and you, and you rightly said, you find that other places. I find that at Ohio State. Uh, the Ohio State fan base, by and large, is very much like an SEC fan base. Uh, and there are certainly others. I, I think Nebraska is like that as well, and there yeah. are certainly others. But uh, I think that it is, it is prevalent uh, in the SEC, particularly with the um, you know with the old school traditional SEC powers: Alabama, uh, LSU, Tennessee, Georgia, Auburn. You know, all of those. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of that because all of those programs have have won a lot too. You talk about your roots. One of the things that's so unique with you is that I, I bet there's a good chunk of people listening to this who are diehard college football fans who have no idea that you went to Alabama. And that's a credit to you because you never, and I mean never, let any sort of bias come out on air. Because trust me, if you did, our Saturday Down South News team, they would, they would be all over that. that. That I know for a fact. When you When you flip that switch, 
when, when exactly did that happen, where you flipped that switch from someone who was probably a huge Alabama fan as a student early in the post Bear Bryant era to becoming like this unbiased, polished, professional journalist? And did you ever sort of struggle with that? Uh, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't think I've struggled with it during my time at ESPN. But, you know, prior to that, it's a, it's a different thing because you grew up with it. And it, as I said, it was a part of your identity. Um, you know, first of all, I, I'll sort of backtrack and tell you how I look at that. Um, I don't think people care where I went to school or who I grew up rooting for. And, and there's no such thing uh, in my judgment as objectivity, but there is such thing as fairness and neutrality. And fairness particularly is my guide word is, you know, be fair. And remember that the viewers don't care where you went to school. It's different for me than it is for Kirk or Desmond or David because they played. You know, I was I was just a, a sorry below average high school player. I didn't play in college. You know, wasn't wasn't good enough. Um, but they have a connection on the field. And and while and while all three of those guys, I think, do a great job of being fair, there is a connection that the fans recognize and that we recognize on the set because we don't want to pretend that they're robots and we do not care about Ohio State despite the fact that Kirk and his father were captains. You know, we're not robots. You know, they're human beings and that's why they love the sport. But it's our it's our job to be fair and I think that is particularly true for the host of the show and if the host of the show is someone who doesn't have a connection that everybody knows about, you know, to the school. So I, I try to, you know, I, I always try to do that. When the switch flipped, I think, was probably uh, – I started working in television uh, while I was still in school at Alabama at uh, Channel 33 in Tuscaloosa. After that, after graduation, I moved to Columbus, Georgia, which is about 30 miles from Auburn, uh, 30, 35 miles from Auburn. So it was in the uh, area of dominant influence, the old ADI. I don't even know if they call the market that anymore. But Auburn you – know, we were on Auburn's cable systems and a bunch of Auburn people in Columbus. So I spent a lot of time – at Pat Dye press conferences. And just yep. as it so happened that one of the best players on the Auburn team that year was finishing his career, he was a year younger than I, I was starting my career, and he was finishing his Auburn career, and one of their best players was a guy named Carlos Cheatham, who had been my high school teammate and a, and a really good friend of mine. And so I would go over there on the uh, Tuesday news conferences and listen to Coach Dye and then many times talk to Carlos. You know, after you know, after it was over, and um, so I think you, when you get to know the people involved, you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, um, they aren't just you know those orange and blue helmets on the other side that I grew up with and just being for. They're they're just people, you know. They're they're people like like me, and and certainly I know Carlos, and I know how you know how hard he's worked to get where he is, and and you get to know Coach Dye a little bit, and you play in Coach Dye's golf tournament, and then when you do what I do at ESPN now, you really, really get to know the people, and you develop an appreciation for it. And, you know, I think that, uh, I just think it's not as hard as people think. One is, one is because it's what the job requires. And then secondly, I think it's also because you, just, you, you learn what everyone puts into it. The one thing you do give up, though, anyone who says that they don't care about 
their alma mater state probably isn't in love with the sport. And I'm still in love with the sport, but you can flip that switch. But it comes at a price. And the price is this. When, when Deshaun Watson hits Hunter Renfro with one second left, you don't feel as devastated as, you know, 14-year-old Reese Davis might have felt. By the same token, and in fact, you don't really feel devastated at all. By the same token, when you're standing on the sideline and Tua Tagovailoa hits Devontae Smith for a national championship winning touchdown, you also don't feel that elation. Your mind goes to, what do I need to do for the trophy ceremony? How am I going to handle this best? And you know, so there's a price to pay. You don't get the same uh, range of emotion. Uh, because of that, because you're kind of in that, that professional space, which I'm sure is something that, you know, that you understand quite well. I, so I didn't realize this, but talking about your local TV roots before you got to ESPN, you basically just missed out on covering three college football legends. I mean, Bear Bryant, Vince Dooley, Boshan Beckler, all like you just miss out being able to, to line that yeah. up. If I, give, if I give you a time machine, who are you going back to cover for a season and why? I mean, look, this is probably where my uh, background would show up. It would have to be Bear Bryant, I think. And, you know, if in that time machine you get to uh, carry carry back some of the things that you've learned in the meantime, I think that, you know, you'd like to ask him a lot of questions about how he developed his programs and how he's adapted and, uh, you know, and some of the social issues that, that we face today and that we're reckoning with that he, um, you know, ultimately – did a very good job with, but, you know, there are always the questions about why not sooner and, and, you know, what were the challenges, what was your thought process, all of those types of things you'd like to do. And I think just someone uh, like that that had that type of impact on um, the culture and the pride of an entire state would be something that would be, uh, that would be fascinating. I've actually gotten to know Coach Dooley uh, pretty well over the years, you know, as much as we do, even though I didn't cover him he was the athletic director at georgia and then through some work that i've had with the national football foundation uh he um you know he's become a guy that i've been friendly with and have a great deal of respect for and uh and bo Schimbeckler certainly did not get to know as well but mark may and i were doing a game at miami ohio uh, several years ago in fact ben roethlisberger was playing and, and bo happened to be there and bo came down to the booth and, uh, and joined us for it. So I, my only encounter with, uh, with Coach Bryant, I don't remember how old I was, but several of my uh, peewee football teammates and I went to the A-Day game, um, I don't know, we are probably 10 or 11 years old, and we, he was leaving. And as he was leaving, we all ran down to see if we could get an autograph. And we asked him, and he, he you know, that – distinctive growl and I, I fancy myself good at doing imitations but I don't think I do a very good Bear Bryant but you know he said boys I'm in a bit of a hurry how about if I just shake all of your hands as a walk and so he shook all of our hands and we thought that was just like the greatest thing that had ever happened but you know I was I was fortunate enough that I did get to um, you know I did get to meet uh, Bo Schimbeckler and, and talk to him a few times over the years and then Coach Dewey I got to know uh, I've gotten to know pretty well and, and really enjoy his company and think he's a, he's a terrific guy. But, you know, the funny Fair. thing is that, that is the one aspect of my career that, I'm, uh, that I, I kind of chuckle about sometimes. I have, the, 
I have the market cornered on being broadcast partners with coaching legends. I mean, you think I spent 10 years in the studio with Lou Holtz. I spent a number of years both on college game day basketball and as play-by-play partner in traveling with Bob Knight. Um, you know, I worked for a couple of seasons with Jim Calhoun in basketball. Uh, in fact, just before I talked to you, I had my least twice weekly phone conversation with Digger Phelps. You know, so I mean, all these Jeez. things that you know that when I was uh, ten, twelve years old, that I, you know, that I couldn't have imagined. And you know, I sometimes it's kind of crazy. I am, um, uh, and I'm sorry to ramble on. You've got me walking down memory lane here. But <laughs> no, that's fine. Years ago, Three or four years ago, I um, it was it was Christmas Eve, and uh, I I realized I hadn't I hadn't talked to Bob Knight in a while, and I thought, you know, and he he's had some struggles, but uh, you know, in, in terms of his health and stuff, so I thought, well, I better call and check on Coach, and so I called, and he didn't answer, and I didn't think much of it, and at like ten seconds left, or ten seconds later, my phone rings, and it's him, and he goes, my boy, did you call me? And I said, I did, I said, I did, Coach, I was, I was wondering. Wish you Merry Christmas and talk to you this. So he started telling me who all was in his house and what he'd been doing. And then he, you know, and then he cracked a couple of jokes. And, you know, and I got off the phone and I thought, man, you know, how, who could have imagined this, you know, when I was a little kid growing up that, you know, I have a relationship where I just pick up the phone and, and not only call Bob Knight, but when he doesn't answer, he calls me back, you know, and it's, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been uh, been really fortunate to be able to be around those guys, and I'm really close to Lou. And uh, you know, I always joked with Lou and told him, I said, I've got a huge advantage on any player that you ever had at Notre Dame. And he he said, What's that? And I said, Well, they only got you for four years. I got you for ten. I said, But there is a downside to that too. So <laughs> you know, and so then he, then he would then he would usually like go into coach mode and you know go, Oh, kiss my you know what or something. When I would tell him, there's a real downside to it too. <laughs> As an Indiana grad, I was gonna I was I, I was gonna have to ask you something about Bob Knight, but that I think that. That takes the cake there. I can picture what it was like traveling, traveling with that guy. And my gosh, I mean, the stories that you could probably tell are all over the place. And he was great at telling the stories. And since you're an Indiana guy, you you have a great understanding for the the loyalty that that people will feel toward him. And I and look, I'm not being disingenuous here. I know that there have been some things over the years for which no one is going to be able to, you know, explain away. I mean, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying that my experience with him was, was very positive and I, and I consider him a friend. Um, if you recall, when we were working together, the Kentucky folks got really upset with him for a while over mm-hmm. a number of things. So uh, we were calling the Kentucky, I think it was Kentucky-Georgia game one night late in the season. So, um we meet, and we're going to go down, uh, you know, to from that, that hotel that's attached to Rupp Arena, and we're going to ride down the elevator together. And as we're, as we're riding down, the, the elevator stops, and they're, uh, they're the couple getting on. And there's a, hus- a wife and her husband, and they step on, and you can just see the fury in the, in the man's face, an older gentleman, when he saw Coach Knight because he hadn't said what he would have preferred about his beloved Kentucky Wildcats. So uh, so the lady says to Coach, she says, you better be nice to us tonight. At which point, 
Bob gets that charming grin. He can be one of the most charming people you've ever been around. And he said, now, why would you not think I was going to be nice? So in the span of going from the 12th floor to the lobby, I'm not sure that Coach won the gentleman over, but his wife, she was she was laughing and patting him on the shoulder and telling him how happy she was to have him in Rupp Arena. That was all in the span of 12 floors, you know, riding the elevator down. And I was just chuckling the whole time because he was he was able to uh, he was able to charm her. So it was uh, it was quite an experience and something that I'm you know that I cherish because uh, you know Bob was was and is uh, very very good to me and uh, you know and, and I know that he has his detractors and he's done some things that you know I'm sure that he would uh, you know, he would even admit that perhaps should have been handled differently um, but you know I, he does have a side of kindness and generosity and um, you know quietly helping any number of people um, over the years that that sometimes gets a little bit overlooked with some of the other more uh, noteworthy incidents. So sticking with basketball here, you have a unique perspective on the Alabama hoops explosion because you covered them locally, but I'm, I'm sure there were years where Alabama hoops didn't warrant even more than a brief mention on the basketball version of college game day. And I've started wondering if we're in the midst of a 2006, 2007 Florida situation where, you know, they win the national championship in football and then potentially win the national championship in basketball. I realize there are a lot of teams that are going to be vying for that. And it's, it's a little bit different when you don't have that experience, but you know, what's your perspective on all this? Because it's probably weird for you to be talking about whether or not Alabama hoops is a national title contender, considering the decades of it that you've consumed. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable that it's happened this quickly. Um, I think, you know, Nate Oates has sort of really captured a great, um, a great way to play because I don't think you're not going to out-recruit Kentucky and Duke and North Carolina and, and, you know, become a power at Alabama, you know, unless you have something – special to offer and, and what they've got, you know, facilities and support of their athletes and other things is, is unparalleled. Nobody does a better job than that and probably in any sport. But it's not perceived in the basketball, you know, communities a basketball school. It's not a place where, you know, you would that the that, you know, Zion Williamson or R. J. Barrett or um, you know, John Wall back in the day or, or heck, even Demarcus Cousins and Eric Bledsoe who are from the state of Alabama, you know, they yeah. you know, they went to Kentucky. Um, so you have to have something to offer the players that that makes it attractive to play there. And NATO has that in style of play, which he shows players mimics a lot of what you see in the NBA now. And it's an effective way to play, and it's an entertaining way to play. And I think that's going to make fans want to come because I think one of the things that happens at a school that is not as entrenched in basketball culture as, uh, as others is that they'll follow you if you win, but if you lose, you can't lose and be boring. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there are some of those stick with you through thick and thin, but I mean, if you're going to lose, at least entertain me. Right. And I think Alabama went through a few years where they did neither. You know, they, they neither won nor were they entertaining to watch. Now they are both, and I, I think that's, you know, that's pretty powerful. I personally don't think they're at a place where, um, 
you know, where they are a national championship contender. I know anything can happen, and they've had a great season. They'll be worthy of that, you know, two seed or whatever they wind up with. But I, I don't look at them, and, and even though I think they're very good and they've done a tremendous job, and guys have had, you know, terrific seasons, I don't look at them as a threat to the the Michigans, the Gonzagas, the Baylors, uh, you know, Illinois, uh, those types of teams. I think there's a little bit of a step up. Could they get hot or play really well and beat them on a particular night? Sure, yeah, they could. But you know, I don't, I don't think that consistently that they look like that to me. But still, what they've accomplished up to this point is uh, is pretty remarkable because we, you know, I, I did the first college game day basketball in 2005, and you know, there were there were a couple times Mark Gottfried had some had some good teams that maybe they got some mention on college game day, but. Not a lot, you know. They just haven't been in the mix uh, very much for for an extended period of time. Really, I don't know if they've been in the national consciousness consistently since when Sanderson was a coach in the '80s when I was in school there. And uh, you know, so it's been a long time. So it certainly is a little bit different now what they're uh, what they've accomplished this year and what it looks like uh, they're building to be able to to sustain. Last question before I get you out on some rapid fire, and I'll tie this back to that media session in Orlando a couple years ago. You, you said something that day that I still think rings true. You said, Georgia will beat Alabama when Georgia stops worrying about beating Alabama. So is this the year that Georgia stops worrying about beating Alabama and beats Alabama in the SEC championship and route to a national title? Is that something that you can see happening? Or are you more of the L. Duncan approach of let's let's just chill on that whole national title talk and pretend like that's not something that we should be discussing on a yearly basis? Uh, I, I don't think that that's what they should do. I think they should aspire to it, and I think they should. That That's the one lesson that the Georgia program hasn't yet taken from Alabama. They've tried to emulate most everything else, but they have not yet been able to get over that mental hurdle, and I still stand by that. Uh, is this the year? It probably should be, just to be honest. Look, Alabama is still going to be good. They're going to have – a lot of players that you know haven't had the opportunity to prove themselves yet, but they probably will because history says that typically those guys step in and, and do a good job. So it probably should be the year that, that Georgia does it, and it, it won't surprise me if they do, but I think that'll be a big part of it is that you know they you know they seem for whatever reason, even if it's somewhat subliminal, they've become fixated on that uh, on on beating Alabama, you know, and they've had, you know, some serious heartbreakers and then, you know, they just didn't measure up this year through the course of the entire game. They did for a while, but they couldn't, you know, didn't really come close to finishing it. Um, so I, I think it's the, I think they're still in the same place. That said, I think that they should be positioned to do it this year. If they can, if they can let go of that, uh, you know that mindset that they, you know, that they can't be complete until they beat Alabama. Is it going to be somehow, um, you know, somehow less fulfilling to them if they, you know, beat Texas A&M or somebody in the SEC championship game and they don't get a chance to beat Alabama to, you know, exercise that uh, metaphorical demon, I guess, or whatever. But, you know, I do think that's a that's a big deal. I think it's something that sort of. Uh, been hanging over that program a little bit and so we'll see if they're able to uh, take a step forward in that regard this year they should because i think you know right now i'm 
leaning a little bit to having them preseason number one a little bit. Um, mm. and, you know, might even have preseason preseason one and two uh, playing in Charlotte when uh, in some order when uh, Clemson and, and Georgia play early in the season. All right, I got five rapid fire questions. Rapid fire Let's questions go. for you, and then and then I'll let you go. Uh, first one. This is just first thing that comes to mind here. Don't need to be too detailed with the answers. First one. Has Tom Rinaldi ever made you cry? Yes. Simple you want more that. detail I mean, than yes? You, you don't need to. I mean, I think we yeah. all kind of know. Um, you'd be lying if you said no. I would have probably asked, are you an actual <laughs> human being if you said no? So that's good. That's, that's yeah. totally fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, all mean, right, second many, one. Many Go ahead. Do because he's a, many of his teachers do because he's such a, a great storyteller, and he's also so sincere. Uh, he's a sincere friend. So, yeah, absolutely he has. Gosh, I'm going to miss Rinaldi. Uh, second awesome. one. You know, I, I'll tell you this, though. You know what else he really makes me cry? When the check comes at dinner and he never reaches for his wallet. What? Tom Rinaldi's I'm, a cheapo? No, no he's not. I'm, <laughs> Gosh, that would have been like. It was so, everybody's so effusive with their praise uh, on Tom that every now and then you've got to at least make up something that's not really true to get, to get at him a little. He's not so pure after all. Um, all right. <laughs> the the hardest that you've laughed on game day, and please, please, please tell me it was when Corso dropped the F-bomb. Well, I, you know, I wasn't there uh, for that. So, um, but watching that, I, I was in studio with Mark May, and we both, we were around the corner. You know, Lou was in there too, and, we were in different parts of the studio. We both came walking toward each other. Like, did he just say what I think he said? And, but yeah, that was a. Well, we were, we we were laughing pretty hard there. I think maybe the other time was even though I had an initial moment of terror when Pat McAfee jumped off that boat at Baylor because, oh, yeah. and I know this is not rapid fire. And I'm sorry. I hope you'll indulge me here. No, that's I've fine. I've been down there. I've been down there earlier, and I was out on a boat. Joey Galloway and I were out on a boat right outside the stadium, and they were telling us how the Brazos was really shallow. He said, "You know, yeah. most places not even really you know much deeper than four feet." And I saw McAfee, and in my I saw what he was about to do, and I was saying, "No, no, 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 no!" And then when I saw him pop up, then I, I laughed pretty hard then too. And he was alive, which was, that was the most important thing to yeah, come that out of that segment, important. which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Best food that you've ever had brought to you out on one of those trays? And then also, does Pollock just lick all the desserts? Pollock never touches a dessert. He will not eat anything with sugar in it. He, he eats cardboard and grass. That's like all he eats. Psycho. Um, but yeah, Desmond and I will go after the desserts. Um, I'm trying to think of the best that we've been brought. So many good things. My favorite restaurant on the tour, and I'm pretty sure they've served us at Clemson at some point. Smoking Pig Restaurant just outside of Clemson is the best barbecue restaurant in the world. It's not that they have the best meat. Archibald's in Tuscaloosa can probably beat them just simply on that. But all things considered, variety of different meats, sides, desserts, whole thing, Smoking Pig's the winner. All right, we're going to cut that up. We'll send a clip to them. We'll get the reimbursement, all that stuff. We'll get that worked out. Appreciate that. Um, Do you get confused more for Chris Fowler or Peter Brady? Uh, Peter Brady. Really? I thought, okay, I thought I was a little bit on an island with that one, but is that, that's pretty prevalent for you? No, no, it's, it's, 
it's Fowler. We we did a, uh, a social media thing where we pointed out to uh, the world that there were in fact two of them. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad we needed to see that. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> last one, last one, and I, I've got to come clean here. My my wife is a huge fan of yours, and by a huge fan. I mean that she has said on many a Saturday morning that she hopes that I age like you do. Um, she may or may not have, but def- she definitely did buy me some glasses in hopes that I'd start to look like you as well. Um, so as someone who is now in his mid-50s and doesn't look like it at all, what's the best tip that you can give me as a 30-year-old to age well? Uh, probably good genes. I hardly drink at all. I don't smoke. I try to eat. I exercise uh, regularly. So nothing really, uh, nothing really that crazy, uh, but that's probably about it. Easy enough. Easy enough. And uh, you know what? And, and, here, and here's the other thing. As, as weird as it seems when you start, and you can get away with it now because I was probably about, you know, 10 years older than you are. Someday you're just going to have to give in on the moisturizer on the face. You just have to. You know, I mean, it's just the way it goes. You don't have to I've, now. I've started that. You will. You'll have to. I've, yeah. I, I, I've started that. It's tough. I just don't do it regularly. I, I think that's just it's, not it's part of my routine. That. I know it well. I, worry. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of how we work. We don't think of it, you know. But know. sometimes you you got you to gotta take a minute for, for a little maintenance or, you know, you know you'll, start, you'll start looking old. That's a good point. That's a good point. Reese, this has been just excellent. Congratulations on the new deal. Would love to do this again soon sometime. Sure. Anytime, man. Give me a call. Happy to do it. Excellent. Take care. Have a good one. Uh, you too. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. By the time that you all are listening to this, the SEC tournament will be underway, which means now is a good time to break that down with our resident hoops expert, Adam Spencer. Adam, let's start with a question you helped spread around on Saturday night. I am clearly desperate for a bandwagon to jump on with Indiana puking on its own shoes. So I took to Twitter. I tweeted that I wanted a team with an up-tempo, high-scoring offense. I wanted a team with a likable coach. Uh, Bench celebrations after threes. At least meh on defense. And most importantly, I need that elite eight upside. Not just looking for a team that might be able to win like a game. Want a team that can go deep. My only other caveat was no blue bloods, no one seeds. Though I'm really trying hard not to fall in love with Michigan. I know that's a weird thing to say out loud. I like Jawan Howard. Always kind of have. But I got something like 32 responses to this. And there were a lot of really convincing arguments. But Adam, in your expert opinion... What bandwagon should I hop on? Well, if it wasn't your team's rival, I'd say everything that uh, that fits your description other than one seed is Illinois, uh, which is a team whose bandwagon I'm on, having grown up in uh, the more central part of Illinois from where you grew up. So, uh, But other than that, I think that there's a team in the SEC that fits all those categories, and that would be the Arkansas Razorbacks, who have, and I know you got a lot of responses saying that, but it's absolutely... It's absolutely accurate. You know, they're a fun team. They have the SEC Freshman of the Year in Moses Moody, who's also a first-team All-SEC guy. He's one of the most versatile guys you can find. He's, you know, going to carry this team on a deep SEC tournament run, I think. They've won 11 straight SEC games entering the tournament, eight straight overall. You know, Eric Musselman gave Nate Oates a run for his money there for a Coach of the Year towards the end and, you know, beat Alabama at the end of the season there 
So, you know, there's a lot going right at Arkansas. Justin Smith, if you want an Indiana connection, there you go. Justin from Buffalo Smith. Grove. He's from my hometown, well, too. I was going to bring that up. So if Indiana, like Indiana, by virtue of Arkansas going deep in the tournament, it'd be like Indiana going deep in the tournament, too, right? Hey, if that's what you guys got to tell yourself there in Hoosierville, then uh, I'll, you uh, you can absolutely take credit for that, I think. So, hey, are you on the Arkansas bandwagon now, then? I'm leaning Arkansas, and there were a lot of really good arguments in the responses, but I think I'm going to wait until after the conference championships to release what bandwagon I'm on because I feel like I need to see the way that things play out. Like back in 2006 when I got on the the Florida bandwagon back in the day, I waited to watch Florida in the SEC tournament after they were red hot coming into it. And I was like, all right, I am all in on this team. Joakim Noah, Al Horford, like Torian Green. These these guys are, this is my brand of basketball. This is so fun to watch. And I waited until that played out. And then I hopped on the bandwagon, picked them to win the national championship, all that. So I think I'm going to wait for this to play out. But I am definitely leaning Arkansas. They have a lot of very, very... convincing things working in their favor i listened to the eric musselman interview on pardon my take and i i love the guy i have been on the must bus for a while but not necessarily with a rooting interest just think that he's a really good coach love the things that he did at nevada so i'm uh, i'm leaning arkansas but i can be swayed elsewhere i, I don't want to say anything's final yet as long as you don't hop on the kansas bandwagon then that's all that's all i ask that's fair. That's a tough. That's a tough one to get on. That, that, that covers the no blue bloods caveat. Ah, that's why yes, we, that's why we went out there. So that's that's good. Um, before we dig into the SEC tournament, I want to first ask you about the team who won't be there, which is Auburn. I saw the John Rothstein tweet about Auburn being worthy of starting off in the top ten if Sharif Cooper is back. Are you on board with that, or is that maybe assuming a lot about a team who went seven and eleven in SEC play and lost seven to ten to end the season? Yeah, you know I was. Gonna agree with Rothstein. Again, a lot depends on if Sharif Cooper comes back, and I don't think he will, personally. I think he's going to be an NBA lottery pick, so I think we've seen the last of him in an Auburn uniform. But if he came back before yesterday, I would have said, yeah, Auburn has top 15 potential. But then they lost Justin... But then they lost just. I can't say his name. But then they lost Justin Powell the other day. The sharpshooting freshman from Kentucky, he's entering the transfer portal, and that is a huge, huge loss. That cannot be understated. I know he only played 10 games as a freshman this year, but he averaged like 11 points, six rebounds, five assists, something like that. And like he looked like a budding superstar before Sharif Cooper ever took the floor. So I was really excited for him to come back alongside JT Thor, Alan Flanagan, Dylan Cardwell, those guys. Like, there's plenty of talent, and Bruce Pearl has another top recruiting class coming in. But if Cooper goes to the NBA, like I think he will, and now that Powell's not going to be there, like that's some huge losses for Auburn. And like the Powell loss cannot be understated. So now I would say, no, I don't think that Auburn's a top 10 team going into next season, not even a top 15 team. But I do think that they have plenty of potential. I'm guilty of doing this thing where I put way too much stock into how a team is playing those two weeks leading up to the conference tournament. Because admittedly, since I've been doing this job focusing on football, that's when I start paying close attention. And sometimes that works out, like with Auburn a couple years ago. And then other times, it can be a bit of this fool's gold thing. It can kind of hurt you. This Arkansas thing doesn't feel like that at all, though. Uh, With Musselman's roster, in a weird way, and I don't know if, if you've made this connection or if other people have... But it's got kind of a Kentucky feel in that it's a team that had a ton of new pieces and it figured things out at the midway point of the season. And it's played much better down the stretch. 
Is Arkansas peaking too early, or is this team due for a, a, a little bit of like a, a bump in the road in Nashville? Or how do, you, how do you see things kind of playing out with them? Yeah, I think that the biggest key was that they got Justin Smith back and fully healthy. Like He's been dominant. It can't be understated how much different this team plays when he's on the floor as opposed to when he was out. So I just really think that, and then you have, you know, freshmen like Moses Moody, and then they have Devo Davis, who's really stepped up in the second half of the season as he's sort of figured things out. Moody's been great all the way through, but Devo needed a little time to figure this out. But now that he's got it figured out, and now that they have J.D. Note figuring out his role as sixth man of the year, like this is a team that is now, like you said, they've figured out their roles. I think that they're a little more uh, veteran than than certain Kentucky teams have been in the past, but this is the model that this is the model that John Calipari follows at Kentucky. He has a couple of star freshmen and uh he's got a transfer and uh, a couple of transfer bigs and Connor Vanover and Justin Smith. So, yeah, that's not a bad comparison at all and I think that Musselman just plays the transfer portal even better than Calipari does because Calipari's just had to get into it the past couple years here to find some big men. So, yeah, I think that that's a that's a decent comparison and I think that uh Kentucky like like those old Kentucky teams, Arkansas has a lot of momentum right now. They've figured it out. So, I don't think it's a fluke and I think it they'll be a tough out in Nashville and I just think that something that's going to hurt them though and we can talk about it in a second is that I think Arkansas has the toughest road to the title game of the yeah. top seeds. So, uh that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, but I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to catch Arkansas right now, that's for sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there should be a lot of motivation to get a two seed in the NCAA tournament. Teams like Arkansas and Alabama, like with how strongly we feel about the ones at the top, it feels so top heavy in a year like this with Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, and Illinois now playing the way that it's played down the stretch. Um, which, you know, I think though at the same time, like, that, that that seems like the two seed is up for grabs in the SEC tournament. And maybe maybe Arkansas is a team that can still go out and get that too. I know the start that they had kind of hurt them and being able to kind of rack up some of those quality wins and all that. But, you know, not having to play one of those teams until a potential regional final, is that a storyline that we should be talking about and, and how coveted those two seeds should be? Yeah, I think that anytime you can avoid a one seed, it's always great, especially if you end up as like the two seed in Gonzaga's regional, because I mean, good luck with that if you want to, but if you can make an elite eight run before you come in, come up against the Zags, then that's, that's always a good thing. But yeah, I think that it'll be interesting because I don't think that all four one seeds will necessarily make it to the elite eight just because of the crazy year that we've seen and all Mm. the madness and stuff but getting a two seed absolutely is always important and uh i think alabama has it locked down i think they could lose their first game in nashville and still be a two seed uh they're in contention for a one seed if they win it all and illinois or michigan falters a little bit in the in the early in the big 10 tournament so that's an interesting storyline to keep an eye on and if arkansas makes it to the final I think they're in contention for the for a two seed, and if they win the final in Nashville, then absolutely I would give them a two seed because nobody would be hotter this side of Gonzaga entering the NCAA tournament if that was the case. So, I, I mean, I saw like the one seed pretty much. Everybody's like, oh, as soon as Illinois beat Ohio State, one seed locked in. Everybody's got that figured out. But I mean, Michigan. So what what could end up happening though theoretically is like Michigan and Illinois playing in a Big Ten championship, 
and then the loser of that game gets knocked off the one line, and then if Alabama wins the SEC tournament, like, are we talking about Alabama's a one seed? Like, is that the scenario that would have to unfold? I think if if Michigan and Illinois make it to the Big Ten final, then they're both one seeds. They'd have to be upset early in the like in their yeah, first in their first game in the Big Ten tournament to to me if if they're gonna and and they still might be the one seeds because of their powerful resumes. So it, there might be nothing Alabama can do, but I do think if they if Michigan or Illinois loses their first game in the Big Ten tournament and Alabama looks dominant and wins the SEC tournament, there's at least a case to be had, and they'll have to discuss that on Selection Sunday. I saw this stat from uh, our guy, Michael Calabrese, who does gambling stuff for us. And it was like 45% of the last 20 SEC tournaments, which do some quick math, that's nine of the last 20 SEC tournaments, almost half. The favorite won it. And this year, the betting favorite is Alabama, which I think even if you asked Alabama fans, they would be a little bit surprised to see that, that Arkansas, with the way that it's played, isn't the betting favorite going into the week. What do you make of the way that Alabama has been playing with having some of these tough starts and a little bit more of a grind style, grinded out style, whereas like Arkansas has been blowing teams out. It's like 16 of their 20 wins or 16 of their 20 games were decided by more than, you know, were decided by double digits. There's some stat out there like that where they, they just haven't been playing in those close games, whereas Alabama definitely has down the stretch. Does, does this feel like a team who's maybe too aware of the target on its back? Or is this just kind of like, late season, this is what you would expect, and kind of wipe the slate clean. At least they kind of know who they are at this point. So I'm going to throw this take at you. I think Alabama's experience in close games actually favors them in a tournament setting because Mm. you're going to be uh, playing these tight games with intensity on a nightly basis, and uh, everybody's fighting for their their seating and their, in some cases, their – NCAA tournament lives in at this point in the season and everybody wants that title so I think that Alabama being in so many close games and uh, having that experience of okay now it's winning time I think that that's going to help them in Nashville whereas uh, you know Arkansas as great as they've been playing like they outside of a an inexplicably close game against Texas A&M on Saturday haven't really had that close game experience and now Arkansas handled that test against the Aggies with flying colors but mm-hmm. like I just think that Alabama's been that way all year and Alabama can get a stop when they need it like Alabama's defense I know people are starting to catch up but I still think that that defense is just so underrated and like everybody there's a lot of like casual basketball fans who still think Alabama is like a live by the three die by the three sort of team and that's something that Nate Oates has worked to uh, sort of counter but this is a, an elite defensive team, and it'll be interesting to see because I think we're going to get another a third uh, Alabama-Arkansas matchup in the final, and I think that this time around, I think that Alabama has the edge because in our, at Arkansas where Alabama lost, like that was just one of the ugliest games I've ever seen. You know, the, yeah. the free throw disparity was as crazy as I've ever seen over the past few years in college basketball, so... It may be on a neutral court in Nashville. Arkansas doesn't get some of those calls. And uh, I think that that title game could be a really fun game where we uh, finally see once and for all which of the two teams, each one has won a blowout on its home court, which one's going to be the best. Yeah, it kind of feels like we're heading in that direction of like a Kentucky-Tennessee matchup, what we were kind of seeing a couple of years ago and how fun those were when it really felt like the SEC had those two elite teams. And then Auburn, of course, went on the run that I did. I think everyone sort of has that potential Kentucky-Alabama showdown circled. Um, And and I know that you were, at least for a bit there, you were in the camp of Kentucky is better than the record. But 
I, I sort of look at, at that matchup, that potential matchup, and I say, you know, the same point that you brought up. Alabama defends extremely well. And then meanwhile, Kentucky doesn't have a guy who can go get a bucket down the stretch, which seems like a weird thing to be saying about a team that's loaded with that much talent. So even if that game stays close, that then should favor Nate Oates' team, I would think. What are your thoughts on that? Or am I perhaps even jumping the gun by assuming that Kentucky's going to get past Mississippi State? I don't think you're jumping the gun on that. I do think that Kentucky takes care of business there. And then that becomes a really dangerous game for Alabama because if they win that game against Mississippi State, Coach Calipari is going to have his team thinking, well, why can't we win it all and uh, shock everybody and steal a NCAA tournament mm-hmm. bid? And I do think that they're stylistically similar to Alabama. But like you said, the Alabama has guys who know how to win. Kentucky has not shown that. Like They've had several second-half collapses this year already, just where they have had a lead with, midway through the second half, and then just it just all falls apart. Now, I do think that guys like uh, Isaiah Jackson and B.J. Boston and Davion Mintz are starting to put it together, but I, I just think that this was a, a bad draw for Kentucky because I think that they would be more interesting on the other side of the bracket facing a potential second-round game against an LSU team that I believe that Kentucky beat recently in the season. And Kentucky just narrowly lost to Arkansas, so I think that they would be a more stylistic lead advantageous situation if they were on that other side of the bracket with some of those all offense less defense teams like LSU and Arkansas so uh, it's it's a bad draw for Kentucky because Alabama is just a similar team to what they do but just better both defensively and offensively than Kentucky so I think that that's where the Kentucky dream dies is in that second round against uh, or in those quarterfinals against Alabama but I do think that they'll at least give the tie to run for their money, especially considering that's a 11 a.m. Central Time tip-off, and Alabama has struggled with those this year. Not a lot of bubble talk this year with the SEC tournament, and I think the team that's that, that's hoping to be able to, to make that run, Ole Miss. What, what does Ole Miss need to do to get in? Because I, I don't think just beating a bad South Carolina team is enough, and we, we see these at-large bids that go to you know teams that are expected to win the conference championship and then they don't and it plays out differently than we always expect and I'm not even convinced that like an LSU win would do the trick. Um, what, what does the bubble look like for Kermit Davis's squad? Yeah, I think that they'll at least need those two wins. They got to beat South Carolina, obviously, and then yeah, they've definitely got to beat LSU in that in those quarterfinals to even have a shot, and then. I think that they need to probably beat Arkansas or whoever comes out of that other side to advance to the final, and then they'll have a good case, but they might still need some help. Like I've got my eye on like some of these Big East games because the, yeah. the, the bubble is like basically all Big East teams at this point in Syracuse because it's March, so Syracuse is on the bubble. So we gotta watch, we got to watch Syracuse. we got to watch uh, some of these Big East teams like Seton Hall and Xavier and all those, but there's still a chance, and Ole Miss is not dead yet. So we'll see how they play with their backs to the wall, and I think that they get by South Carolina, but then that that LSU matchup becomes really, really interesting because we know that LSU doesn't like to play defense, and we know that Ole Miss does nothing but play defense. So that's about as different stylistically as you can get. I think I uh, I wrote down here, you know. LSU is number five offensively in uh, Ken Palm's rankings and 127th in defensive efficiency, whereas uh, Ole Miss is 114th offensively and 
20th defensively. So that's about as different as you can get within this SEC tournament. So that'll be an interesting matchup and uh, whoever controls the pace in that game. And Kermit Davis's team has to do it if it wants any sliver of hope to play in March Madness. I think I know the answer to this, but Florida and Mizzou are in really similar spots where it feels like they're most likely in, but the way that they play down the stretch hasn't exactly instilled much confidence. And if both of them were to get upset in their first round matchups this week, there would suddenly be a whole lot of bubble watching. Now, you you know this as a Mizzou guy. I mean, you've lived this. This is a team that you're like, all right, you're talking about as a top 10 team. And then the way that they've played, it hasn't really played out the way that you could have hoped. But what do you make of those scenarios going into the tournament? Yeah, at this point, I'm hoping, you know, we talked about Arkansas's path being the hardest to the final uh, earlier. And I think that in my mind, that's because I am hoping that Mizzou can get past Georgia, which is no given the way that the Tigers have finished the season because they lost to Georgia earlier this year, just a last month so and they had a big lead in the second half and then just completely fell apart they were up double digits and then they lost by double digits so it's like what happened there and I do think that if they can get past the Bulldogs in that first game on Thursday then I do think that they will play Arkansas tough that's a that's a rivalry game whether the fans of either school want to admit it or not that's a big-time rivalry game. Those two teams play each other really tough. It'll be interesting to see because Arkansas beat Mizzou in overtime when Mizzou didn't have Jeremiah Tillman, and Mizzou trounced Arkansas earlier this year when Arkansas didn't have Justin Smith. So both those big guys should be back if that is indeed the, the Friday matchup. And I think that that would be a really tough game for Arkansas. And I do think that Arkansas would have the edge just because of the way that they've been playing down the stretch, whereas Mizzou's been the exact opposite. But Mizzou will at least give them a battle and wear them out a little bit in their first game in Nashville, and then they'll have to recover and try to play. That's tournament time, though. You know, you have all these games back-to-back-to-back, and uh, it's all about attrition and uh, who can pick up the easiest win so they have a little bit of rest moving forward. People are going to know this probably by the time that this comes out, but... Um, this could be cold taked. I, I watched AM give Arkansas everything it could handle on Saturday night, and I think that team could absolutely beat Florida, like, especially if Quentin Jackson shoots it like he did. I mean, that was a team that looked like it was playing with nothing to lose, and you go the entire month of February without playing basketball in this weird year. But I, I think that that's such an intriguing matchup. Is that is that something that, like, are we looking too far into AM on a very small sample size? Like, is this team better than obviously like what their seed, what their seed is going to be going into a tournament in which they really just haven't had the opportunity to play a lot of basketball? Yeah, I think that the Aggies we've seen since they've come back from their long COVID pause, they've had leads. Like they had a lead against Mississippi State in that first game back, and then they gave Arkansas a battle and even had a lead late in that game too. But with the long COVID pause, they've just faltered down the stretch. And I think that that's just conditioning. And if they are healthy and they're getting their legs back under them, then yeah, I think that they beat Vanderbilt on Wednesday before this, uh, before this comes out, I think that they will absolutely take care of business against Vanderbilt, but because Vanderbilt doesn't have Dylan Disu, who's a huge part of their success and Scotty Pippen Jr. can't do it alone as we've seen. So uh, I think that they get past Vanderbilt and yeah, they're a very dangerous matchup for Florida, especially because we don't know which Florida team's going to show up that like anytime anything good happens towards, towards Florida, they take 
two steps back. And they took one step back against Tennessee. So are they going to turn things around or are they going to take that second step back and lose in uh, in disappointing fashion in that first matchup that they have in Nashville? I, I don't know, but I do think that that's a really dangerous matchup for them. Yeah, Mike White hot seat would uh, would get very, very warm if that were to, to play out. Absolutely. That way, I, think. I think we can say that. Let's do uh, a SEC tournament SEC tournament championship prediction, which teams wins, and then let's also do SEC tournament MVP, and then lastly, how many teams make it into the NCAA tournament. So let's start off with your championship and who wins it. I've got Alabama over Arkansas in my. I, I'm picking the chalk just because I think that these two teams have shown time and time again down the stretch here that they are the best two teams in the conference, and I just think that that's still going to hold. I think that there are some good games in there. I think that a potential 2-3 matchup in the semifinals between Arkansas and LSU might be the best game of the tournament. But hmm. I think that that will, if if my predictions hold true and Arkansas has to play Mizzou and then LSU back-to-back to reach the final, I think that those are going to be two really tough games for the Hogs. And then they'll enter and that'll give Alabama the the slight edge in the championship game just because they won't have had those tight like exhausting matchups. So give me Alabama to win. And because of that, I think that the guy who's going to be the MVP is Jaden, Jaden Shackelford. I just really like his game. I like the way that he can get to the rim. Uh, You know, if he takes over, which he's very capable of doing, if he gets hot from beyond the arc and just carries this team offensively, which he's shown he can do, I think that he's going to be a really interesting player to watch because we know Herb Jones isn't at 100%. That back injury is still bothering him, and it's probably going to be bothering him until the offseason. So this is somebody else has to step up. Javon Quinterly has looked good lately. J- John Petty Jr. can take over if he gets hot from beyond the arc. But I think that Jaden Shackelford, he's the guy who can consistently do it. He can get to the rim. He can get to the free throw line. And if he's attacking and he's looking like he's got a chip on his shoulder – then I think that he's the guy who has the most potential on that team to win the MVP award. And then let's do how many teams make it to the NCAA tournament because the the, the chalky answer is six, obviously. Ole Miss getting in would make it seven unless something really crazy were to happen and one of those, you know, like Florida or Mizzou would somehow not get into the field or something like that. But is, is six the number that you're going with? Yeah, I'm going with six. I think that Ole Miss comes up short. I think that they lose to LSU in uh, their bubble bursts. But I think, and I think Mizzou has enough. I think they're the ones that are the most in danger of missing out. But I think that they have enough. They have so many quad one wins, and they were so strong in uh, in non conference play. They have a win over Alabama. They have a win over Arkansas. So I do think that they're the team that they have a win over Florida too. So I think that they their resume speaks for itself, even though if you look at them on the eye test, you're like, how does that team have all these wins? <laughs> like it, it's it's inexplicable, but they have the resume and that's what counts when it comes to the selection committee. Yes, they factor in how well you've been playing lately, but Mizzou just has so much strength and so many quality wins that they're they're safely in, even if I think Georgia upsets them on Thursday. Adam, before you go, um, why don't you plug all the content that you got going on? I know you're super, super busy, and we've got a lot of people writing basketball stuff this time of year, but I know with uh, all starting five stuff like that, why don't you let people know where to find all of your great stuff? 
Yeah, on uh, at SDS Basketball on Twitter. Uh, that's our new basketball account that we're uh, posting a lot of stories to. We have me. I'm writing two starting fives a week. Uh, I'm doing an SEC tournament notebook on the site. Uh, we've got Joe Cox, who's a great Kentucky writer and just basketball writer in general. We've got Neil Blackman, a Florida guy who put together an incredible SEC tournament preview that'll still be relevant on Thursday when this comes out. So, yeah, head over to Saturday Down South. Check out at SDS Basketball on Twitter for all of that good stuff. There's going to be plenty of writing from me and and Neil and Joe and all those guys uh, moving forward. And I saw I saw you had a piece on uh, SEC football guys you want to see on the court too. So uh, I'm sure you'll chip in uh, with some coverage as well. So it's 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 a great time of year, and uh, I'm just glad we're having basketball right now. That's the that's the best part. Amen to that, Adam. Great stuff, man. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Make sure to leave us a five-star review, like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to have a lot of great stuff coming down the pipeline coming up here. Uh, SEC Tournament Weekend, so, so excited for it. Watch all the hoops. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.